0: Hello, everybody. Welcome back to Thinking Theologically, the podcast where we teach you how and why you should think theologically. I'm one of your hosts, Jack Dodgen, joined as always by our resident theologian in training, Spencer Shaw. Spencer, how you doing? Good. Tired, but good. Almost done with the school paper
1: stuff. Master's thesis. Almost, almost done. Out of here. Almost done. So where, uh, I don't know. I don't know exactly where we'll be, by the time we record next i don't know redoing don't it know where i will be uh, probably <laughs> probably at the part of uh, the the point of having to rewrite everything but yeah we're almost almost there so well that's good that's just good. crawling to the finish line literally hey, crawling to the but you're finish but line. you're
0: doing it you know, it's more that can be more than can be said of of me uh, that's why you get the title and i do not <laughs>
1: Well, it's th- this thing just keeps getting longer. It was, I think, when I first thought I was done, it was like eighty-eight pages or something like okay. that. Okay, uh, we're now at a hundred and three, so it just keeps it keeps growing. Stop doing that.
0: <laughs> You'll never finish.
1: It's not my You'll fault. It's not my fault. I've. It's not my fault. I, if, my fault. I blame my. Professor. If you turn that into
0: a book and it doesn't have pictures, uh, that's too long for me to read just so we're clear. Uh, well, (laughs) uh, it's just too much.
1: If anyone's listening here would be interested in illustrating a book on the Lord's supper in the gospel of Luke, let me know. Easy, easy. What if I
0: illustrate it?
1: (laughs) I need royalties. (laughs) I want it to sell. So I'm going to try to try to find
0: somebody else. Yeah. Okay. Perfect. Perfect. Fair enough. My, uh, it's like I have a face for podcasting, um, and so I also have <laughs> – that's also my illustrative uh, ability. Uh, be great for audio listeners. Okay, um, <laughs> we're continuing with the series uh, that we have been doing here for the last uh, two episodes. This is part three uh, for us here. On the Lord's Supper, this one, Spencer uh, swears, is a shorter episode. We'll find out. We'll see. Uh, this we'll see. T- today's subject, as you can already see from the title, about forgiveness and salvation, uh, is a subject that will be uh, that I think most people will be more uh, used to uh, as uh, as an idea, as a concept with the Lord's Supper, uh, but still an important one for us to cover. So we're going to do that. Before we do all of that, I want to remind you about thinkingtheologically.org for all of the podcasts as well as other stuff that is. Sitting there, Uh, we've got some uh, some good stuff coming along. Spencer and I are both busy. I'm busy in different ways. I'm teaching and reading constantly, so um, (laughs) I'm. We'll be turning some of that stuff into uh, written and and audio content. But one thing that you might have missed, if you don't know about thinkingtheologically.org, is we put up uh, a series. It's just a series of sermons that I had done this past year, but it covers abortion, homosexuality, transgenderism, and hookup culture uh, as subjects, uh, and how all of that ties into, you know, Gnosticism, stuff like that, and how that's just kind of continuing into today. Uh, See, I read a little bit. Uh, I know some things uh, about some stuff. And uh, that's one of those things that was not on our podcast, but is some content that's available that I think will be very useful um, to you. So Uh, Check that out. We've got a ton of other stuff as well about Gospels and composition and all sorts of stuff with more to come. So check out thinkingtheologically.org. Make sure you like us on Facebook at Thinking Theologically. Uh, And then be sure if you have comments, questions, criticisms, or if you want to say positive affirmations, that would be great too, uh, at strongchurchministries at gmail.com. You can reach each of us on Facebook as well, either through the page or personally. And whatever, if we have any Gen Zers listening, or I think Generation Alpha is the next one, but they may be too young. Um, If you have any, if we have any Gen Zers listening and you're on, you know, TikTok or Snapchat or... As long as we, up until the point that TikTok gets banned, we'll be on there. There you go. There you go. So if you have those things, Spencer is there. Uh, and so definitely use that and reach out to him uh, with, again, comments, questions, affirmations, and criticisms. We love the haters. We don't have any haters, I don't think. Not to our faces. You know, I forgot to tell you, I ran into somebody I at Affirming the Faith that, uh, you know, from, uh, from Tuttle that said, tell the resident theologian I said, Hello. Hey, there we go. so I I Somebody's. apologize for forgetting that, but if they're listening, here's somebody listening. <laughs> <laughs>
1: there
0: you go. Okay, we're talking about the Lord's Supper again uh, here as we continue our series because as Spencer said, 80 something pages to hundred something pages, you know he just can't he's just he's got Lord's Supper on the brain. got Luke's Gospel on the brain. Just- Keep talking. Gotta keep talking about it. Uh, today we're dealing with forgiveness and salvation, and we have some phrases or words here uh, that we want to focus on. The first set is this phrase for you. Um, I'm I I'm not sure. Is uh, what section of Luke are we in
1: with all of this? Do you remember the chapter? off the Top of your head. Luke twenty-two. Uh, these are verses nineteen and twenty. Which. Fun fact, I don't know if we're going to do anything on this. We might. It might be, I don't know. We might do like a bonus Lord's Supper episode nice. after we get That's done That's my favorite everything. kind of Lord's Supper. I don't know. Uh, uh, maybe I'll, we've never done this before. Maybe I'll do a, like a short, like a 10-minute something. I don't know. Be, but verses 19b. <laughs> okay. So the second half of verse 19 and verse 20, yeah. which have all of the Lord's Supper language that connects to Jesus' passion, to his death. So... Yeah. The, the, the body given for you, do this in remembrance of me, and the cup that's poured out for you in the new covenant of my blood. Uh, all of that is not in all of our manuscripts of the Gospel of Luke. Mm. Uh, so it's actually debated whether or not any of that is original. Interesting. Um, so I've got an appendix in my uh, thesis that addresses the textual variant in Luke 22. Scribal um, notes, potentially? So A little... Um, uh, Conflating
0: not, is not—is that the word? I don't know. No, that's not the word. Where they add on pieces, you know,
1: forever and ever uh, well, stuff. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, could, that could—I think that would just fall under scribal addition. Conflation is a possibility, and that—but um. that would be bringing other works together. So you conflate Luke with the institution narratives in Matthew, Mark, and First Corinthians. Eleven huh. um, is how you could get nineteen and twenty. Um, okay. particularly some think it's a conflation of Mark and 1 Corinthians 11 so Mark and Paul are brought together and then added to Luke um, hey I'm interested I'll listen to that bonus episode that doesn't make any sense to me I have no idea <laughs> why it was taken out like I think it's original I have no idea why it was taken out hmm. but it makes it doesn't make any sense for it to not have been there because then you have no Lord's Supper Really like there's, I don't know why it doesn't make sense to me why Luke would not include it. Interesting. It makes more sense that someone would delete it, even though that doesn't make any sense, sure. but I think it makes more sense yeah. than Luke not including it. Um, we may do an episode on this.
0: The, so, the Cause this one, this is about to turn into that episode. So we got to,
1: so there we go. <laughs> we uh, but besides that, let's phrase for you. That is Luke 22 verses 19 and 20. Okay is where we right see on. this phrase. Uh, so in verse 19, Jesus takes the bread. He gives thanks to it. He breaks it, and he gives it to his disciples. And he says, this is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And then Jesus takes the cup. If you remember what we talked about with Passover, this is actually the second cup now. Okay, uh, But uh, he took the cup after supper. Another interesting thing, after supper is only in Luke not in Matthew and Mark. Mm. So that again connects to the Passover imagery of, uh, you have two cups and then you have the supper that is begun with the breaking of bread. So Jews would break bread to begin a meal. So you would have the two cups, you would break the bread, you would share the meal, and then you would have two cups after the meal. So Jesus is following the first cup kind of takes the place of the first two cups of Passover And then Jesus breaks bread, as you would naturally do as a Jew before a meal. Sure. Then they share a meal. Then after the meal, they have those post-meal cups. And it's the bread before the meal and the cup after the meal that he reinterprets as the Lord's Supper. Which might be a surprise to some people that you have this big meal that actually separates the bread from the cup when Jesus institutes Mm. as he's following the... But that's the way it would work for Passover because you didn't have another cup until after the meal. The breaking of the bread began the meal, and then you have it afterwards. Uh, so Luke is again tying us to the Passover, which we've already talked about. But what's interesting, one reason that might not be in Matthew and Mark is because we know reading Paul's letters, most of which predate the Gospels. Uh, that's going to be important for something that we'll I'll talk about here in a minute. Okay. But most of Paul's letters predate the writing of the Gospels. So uh, Paul did a lot of his writings in the 50s and Mark, the first gospel written, was probably written in the mid to late 60s. And then all the rest of the gospels were written after 70. And John was written at the very end of the first century. Some would even say it was written in the second century. It's a debate for another day. But I say all that to say, we know when we read like 1 Corinthians 11, We have the institution of the Lord's Supper that Paul references. 1 Corinthians 11 is actually the first written source about the Lord's Supper because 1 Corinthians was written before any of the Gospels. It was written probably in the 50s. So 1 Corinthians 11 is the first evidence we have of the Jesus institution of the Lord's Supper. And in 1 Corinthians 11, we see that it's part of a bigger meal because Paul's like, why are you eating all of this and dividing rich and poor? Some people have food, some don't. And it's all a big mess, right? Yeah. Um, yeah. So we know that Jesus institutes it as a part of a meal, specifically the Passover meal. And it seems that that tradition was carried on in the early church. We see that in 1 Corinthians 11. They're sharing it as part of a bigger meal, kind of like when Jesus instituted the Lord's Supper. But then, it seems that early on, the Lord's Supper became more liturgical. I don't know exactly how a better way to talk sure. about that. It became more um,
0: structured as a specific Christian event.
1: Yeah, okay. yeah. It uh, more traditional, maybe sure. more uh, special. So it got, re- when that happened, and you see that when you go and you compare the language of Matthew, Mark, and Luke in the institution of the Lord's Supper, okay. when you compare their language, the language that overlaps, when you look at it in the Greek, um, the language that overlaps is actually liturgical type of language, like what you would expect someone to say over the Lord's Supper before the church partakes of it. Uh, so it seems that. It became liturgical very early, and you kind of had these set ways of talking about it when the church would partake of it, which we still kind of have today, right? If you think about people that get up and preside over the Lord's Supper, we're normally rehashing the same things, even if it's different people. We're just saying that we kind of have the same types of things that we go over and over and over again to talk about. seems something like that happened fairly early on. I say all that to to say that when it became more of a liturgical type of experience, it was probably removed from a meal, which is why Matthew and Mark do not include the reference to the meal because by the time they're writing, it was no longer, at least in the communities that they're writing to, it was no longer a part of a meal. Luke brings the idea of a meal back into it because he wants to emphasize the Passover connection. But that's not important. It's not important for Matthew and Mark. Okay. Um, that has nothing to do with what we're talking about, and this is how short episodes that's, become long see, episodes. That's what we've already done two So rabbit trails. We haven't even
0: like seen the rabbit yet. That's the. <laughs> so uh,
1: we're trying to talk about this phrase for you. So in verse twenty, in verse nineteen, Luke twenty-two nineteen, Jesus takes the cup. He says, "It's his body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me." And then Jesus, in verse twenty, takes the cup. After supper, just talked about what that means, and he says this cup is poured out, again, for you. This cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. Now, what's interesting about that phrase, for you, is in the Gospels, it only shows up in Luke. Uh, Matthew and Mark do not use the phrase, for you. Paul does, in 1 Corinthians, Hmm. our first written account account of of the Lord's Supper, but Paul only uses it for the bread. In first Corinthians, Jesus breaks the bread and says that it is his body, which is given for you. Luke does the same thing, but only Luke repeats the phrase for the cup. Only Luke has Jesus saying Hmm. that the cup that is poured out is for you. That's so Luke has it. Matthew and Mark don't have for you. Paul has it once just for the bread. And Luke has it twice for both the bread and the cup. Now, we could, there's several reasons why this may be. One is, we haven't talked much about authorship of Luke, but Luke historically was attributed to Luke, the sometimes traveling companion of Paul. So, there's a possibility of a Pauline connection with the Gospel of Luke. So, if Luke is familiar with the Pauline tradition, that may be he might have gotten for you from 1 Corinthians like that that could very well be where it comes from which is why we see it in both and but even if he wasn't the traveling companion to Paul the fact that Paul was writing so much earlier means that it's possible even if he didn't know Paul to be familiar with Paul's the Pauline tradition sure. to be familiar sure. with 1 Corinthians 11 and so that might be where he gets this phrase for you from but what the phrase for you does so back to our topic of forgiveness and salvation what the phrase for you does is it gives jesus passion an overtly atoning significance that is as the lord's supper looks to jesus passion that is jesus suffering and death and he says that the lord's supper which reflects the giving of his body and the pouring out of his blood on the cross. We, for Jesus to say for you is to talk about how the cross is Jesus doing something for us. Specifically, it's Jesus giving up of himself in order to forgive us or in order to save us in order to deal with the sin that has enslaved us. So it gives this idea of atoning for sins becomes very overt, very explicit in Luke because of the addition of this phrase, for you. Like We know Jesus is dying for us, for his followers, to bring us that forgiveness and salvation and that freedom from sin. So, kind of like you said at the beginning, For most of us, that's where our mind goes anyways. We take the Lord's Supper, we think of the cross and Jesus providing forgiveness and salvation and freedom. Uh, Luke makes that more explicit than Matthew and Mark, and even more explicit than Paul, because he has it twice. He wants to make sure that we know that Jesus' death, which is seen in the Lord's Supper, is a for you, is an atoning, a forgiving, a salvific kind of act.
0: Um Yeah, okay. Um, so definitely uh, an idea we're familiar with. In fact, when you when you brought in 1 Corinthians 11 and then we talked about kind of wrote tradition uh, orienting of the Lord's Supper, I was like, oh yeah, I I hear from First Corinthians 11 like almost <laughs> almost every week. Uh, when we come together, that's the section. Um, that we go to uh, when it comes to all of this stuff, and so I think a lot of us are familiar with that section and all of that, but not familiar with the phrasing and how it differs uh, from the other accounts that deal with the Lord's Supper, Paul and you know the others in the Gospels, the Synoptics, anyway. Um, but then also how Luke is so attached to Paul—that's all—that's all new stuff. Um, for me, I knew Luke and Paul had some connection if, in fact, they were traveling companions. Um, but uh, I knew there was some connection, but this whole idea of how they talk about certain things was uh, interesting and new uh, to me there. Yeah.
1: Um, Maybe we'll have to do an episode also on the authorship <laughs> great. Of, of Luke. Because <laughs> I've got a chapter in my thesis on that. That's that's interesting. we gotta, we got to leave that's people a reason
0: to get the book, man.
1: To. Yeah. Well, that's some reason. That's some of the reason that people don't think that nineteen and twenty are original because they sound so much like Paul. Gotcha. And most of Luke doesn't sound like Paul. Sure. Some argue. Sure. Some argue Luke's very different than Paul. And that idea of atoning is a very Pauline thing, right? Jesus dying for sins, like that's very Paul. Right. Paul says that, like word like word for word, multiple to like that's very Paul. That's not very gospelly. Like you don't have that kind of the, the gospels. A lot of the times, do something different with Jesus. Sure. And what Jesus does, it, it's not as so. They call the you know the atoning stuff is very would be a very high Christology, a high view of the the Christ, very godly, very so very salvific, sure. very. And you get a lot of that in Paul. The Gospels tend to be a lower Christology. Jesus, the human, is emphasized. Okay, Jesus, sure, yeah. the human Messiah. Jesus, the descendant of David. Jesus, the suffering Messiah. Jesus, the inclusive Messiah or the prophet. Because Matthew is Jesus, kind of, Jesus is the Jewish Messiah. And Mark, he's the suffering Messiah. And Luke, he's the prophetic Messiah. Mm-hmm. So very much focused on his ministry. And then John's different. John has is the only gospel with a high Christology. Sure. Jesus is God the Messiah. In the beginning was the word. Um, so some argue that, that Luke's very low, so it doesn't fit with Paul. Some argue that that's a misreading of Luke, and Luke is a lot closer to Paul.
0: Um, okay, thought here. This is going off script. Now I'm doing it. Um, with the uh, overtly atoning idea and that being a high Christology uh, sort of idea and all of this, okay. It does fit somewhat of Luke's discussions around the table, as we've talked about already. Just thinking about, um, uh, I'm not sure if this is his gospel. That's why it's just a thought. So running through, I know who he's meeting with at the table. Uh, those that are the you know the segregated sinners uh, from. So tax collectors and sinners, the, the worst of the worst and all that, uh, that Jesus is going to the sinful individuals um, for the purpose of uh, bring about salvation for them, bring them into the fold instead of keeping them on the outside, the outcast position. Um, so that whole idea of saving is throughout... Jesus at the table with the sinful people—might that be part of what Luke is doing here with the double "for you"s uh, and really emphasizing that atoning idea? Or is that like way off? Is it possible? Well,
1: yeah, no. I I think when he's talking about "for you," right, the most explicit reference is obvious that lead the disciples. Yeah, but I don't think right. Luke's just thinking about the twelve uh, because specifically Luke says the apostles in verse fourteen. Uh, he took Jesus took his place at the table, and the apostles with right. him. Right. So Luke's very explicit that it's the apostles that, and they, it might not just be the apostles. That bothers some people. There might be because sure. in Luke you have this group of people that are following Jesus. I have a hard time believing that they're not all there. That's not what the gospels want to show because that's not important. But like in Luke eight, you have a group of women who are financially supporting Jesus. Right. I feel like the financial supporters are probably at the table. Maybe I'm wrong. Well, uh, but so I, I'm thinking more... I feel like they don't just disappear.
0: But I'm thinking more this thread of Jesus saving at the table is kind of there thematically for Luke. Yeah,
1: so the the for you, I would assume for Luke would also... This is me assuming some things about sure. Luke. But I would assume that the for you is all those who follow or who believe in Jesus. Sure. So in Luke's gospel, right, he shows how it's the poor, the sinners, the tax collectors, women, a people that are excluded in some form or fashion. Right. Uh, the, the the sick, the diseased, the possessed as well. Right. These are the ones that come to Jesus. These are who Jesus chooses to interact with. These are the ones that Jesus is Saying they are accepted into the kingdom, um, and if Luke is presenting the atoning significance of Jesus' death as so, Jesus' death gives access to the kingdom. That it's giving access to those outcasts who Jesus has, through his table fellowship, shown in the present their acceptance into the kingdom in the future. Right, we're not yet fully in the kingdom. Right. But their ability to be at the table with Jesus shows their acceptance in the kingdom in the future. Um, and even with the sinners, you have this idea of forgiveness. We're going to go there in a minute. Um, so I'll save forgiveness for point number Fair three. Enough. Okay.
0: Well, but yes, yeah. I would agree okay, cool.
1: that it's all those are probably included.
0: Um, all right. So from for you into the uh, next Right, We're making great time, by the way. <laughs> Uh, the next phrase here, um, "new covenant," which again, uh, and I'll turn it over to you here. But again, it's one of those unique phrases with Luke and uh, and Paul. Mm-hmm. So, tell us a little
1: bit about that. Uh, well, I also want to mention I mentioned the liturgical language yeah, that yeah. tended that seems to develop, that's another place Luke could have gotten this. So, oh, it okay, might not sure. necessarily be from Paul. It could have been that very early on churches started using similar language to talk about the Lord's Supper. Again, like our churches, right? You go into most churches of Christ, you're going to hear the same kinds of things rehearsed at the Lord's Supper because we've made it this liturgical memorial type of thing. Uh, So in regards to the cup, Jesus says that the cup is the cup that is poured out for you, which is the new covenant in my blood. Matthew, Mark, and Luke all talk about the covenant, but as you said, only Luke and Paul call it the new covenant. Uh, Matthew and Mark have Jesus saying that the cup is my blood of the covenant. Okay. So no reference to new covenant. Uh, So the new covenant is probably a reference back to Jeremiah 31. Yeah. If you go back and you read Jeremiah 31, about verses—I don't have it on here. I think it's thir- about verses 31 through 34. I think that's right, yeah. Are the ones that talk about the new covenant. God is saying that he's going to bring them a new covenant that is going to be within them. It's going to be a covenant that's going to be written on their hearts. Uh, so probably a reference to the Spirit there as well that's going to fill us as a part of the new covenant. The Spirit being a theme in Luke and Acts as well so maybe a spirit connection there sure. not explicit in the lord's supper but that is a theme in luke and Acts. so the spirit is definitely a part of the bringing about of the new covenant i think for luke uh go to acts chapter 2 right and we see the uh, beginning of acts where jesus promises to give them the spirit and they'll be witnesses uh, in judea and samaria right to the ends of the earth there Yeah. Uh, at the end, I believe it's thirty-four, verse 34 of Jeremiah 31, God promises to forgive their sins. So he's going to give them a new covenant that is going to be within them. It's going to be written on their hearts. And through that new covenant, they're going to get forgiveness of sins. So by referring to the new covenant, there's the explicit language of a covenant where people's sins are going to be forgiven. Now, here's the interesting thing. Uh, it seems to me if we're interp- if i'm interpreting Jeremiah 31 correctly that Luke is interpreting the forgive- that Luke is reinterpreting the idea of forgiveness of sins in Jeremiah 31 because in the original context God is likely promising to forget Israel's sin by allowing them to return from exile and by do So by doing so, God will develop a deeper relationship with Israel. It seems to be this idea. Because of Israel's sins, they're taken into exile. And it seems what God is pro, Like in the original context, the way God's promise would have been understood is, I'm going to forget your sins, or forgive your sins, however you want to think about it. Same idea. I'm going to forget your sins and allow you to come back from this punishment. Allow you to come back from exile. Just as a- You're going to come back... Aside to that, yeah,
0: that's Jeremiah thirty one, thirty eight through forty is the rebuilding of the the city, all of its gates, all of that never to be plucked up again. So very return from exile, build back up language, just for those of you reading at home.
1: Yeah, yeah. Uh, thank you for, for pointing yeah. that out. Yeah, because you go into you're gonna return back from exile, you're gonna rebuild everything. Yep. Right. Uh, so God's gonna forget their sins, they're gonna be allowed to return back. And as a result, it's going to deepen their relationship with God. That seems to be the idea. You know, there's going to be a, I'm going to renew the covenant. It's going to be within you, it's going to be written on your hearts. There's going to be a deeper relationship between us when I bring you back from exile Mm -hmm. and forget your sins. What Luke is doing here, and Luke's not the first one to do this, Paul, as at least in the written record, seems to be the first one to do this. But uh, Luke is capitalizing on that. Uh, Luke is reinterpreting these promises by saying that a greater fulfillment of these promises, which is made possible through greater forgiveness and greater access to God, has come through Jesus. So in Jesus, mm-hmm. there is now a... a it, Hebrews comes to my mind, too, yes. which has some Pauline connection, too. I don't think Paul wrote Me it, either. but it has, some, it has some Pauline language, right. too. He seems to be influenced by Paul which Luke might be as well. And they kind of take Paul and do some different things with Paul than what Paul does. With and there's Paul, a big
0: unpacking sense. of Jeremiah 31 in that book as well.
1: <laughs> yeah. Cause it's all about the new covenant, yes. right? Which is greater through Jesus, who is greater, who does greater things. Right. And it seems to me that Luke is doing something very similar here that this promise is fulfilled to a greater degree because there's a greater forgiveness of sins So, again, I'm thinking of Hebrews. It's not that—this is a topic for another time— it's not that there wasn't forgiveness under the law. God said there was. So either God's a liar or there was forgiveness. (laughs) To me, the idea is more— Paul specifically goes to the idea of the powers of sin have been defeated. Mm -hmm. There's a difference between individual sins being forgiven and the powers of sin being dismantled. I think that's the biggest difference that Jesus makes that Jesus greater forgiveness is that I'm not just forgiving your sins but I'm dismantling the powers which now give you a greater access to God so it's not just you're going to Israel's going to deepen their relationship with God but God through the spirit is now going to come and dwell within Israel within the people yeah within the followers that have been forgiven and all of this is coming about through Jesus death and resurrection which we are reminded of when we take of the Lord's Supper. So it's okay. not just "Oh, yay, Jesus has forgiven me, but it's a greater forgiveness. It's and it's a greater access to God that Jesus has now given to us.
0: Hmm, interesting. Uh, I'm having a I'm having a thought. Hold on. <laughs> Sorry, this is this is just what this episode is. Uh, a little bit of stuff off the the cup here isn't there something about like partaking with it's not with the lord's supper i'm thinking of like a partaking with uh demons or something like that because what what immediately came to mind i'll tell you why is the the whole powers of sin being defeated and that that's what maybe Luke has in mind here with all of this is not not salvation at all but a deeper level of that uh, a greater depth to the idea of salvation because again being connected to the Passover as this is that is a, that is, that is a salvation that was a freedom from the bondage of something uh, to be released to the promised land under God's Uh, following new exodus Uh, is what jesus yeah so there's salvation here and there's been salvation with this whole idea uh, but a greater depth of it Um, and all of paul's power language as we'll deal with in the next series that we do if we ever get through this series which may never happen (laughs) but if we get through this series talking about uh, unseen realm spiritual world sort of stuff there's very much kind of a i don't want to say spiritual warfare that that's what that is at the Lord's table, but that there's an aspect of acknowledging the triumph of God over these things of Jesus over these things, uh, which leads to our salvation uh, and using the already not yet language, uh, having sins forgiven now, but also moving towards a time when sin will not reenter our lives. Like that's not a concern that we will have. Um, in the the not yet that great uh, table with God as we talked about uh, in the last episode. So I'm not sure where the verse is that I'm thinking about it, but um, very interesting stuff regardless <laughs> uh, here about the Lord's Supper and a, a greater depth of salvation as a result of the new covenant. Interesting. Is this last word here that we're moving on to also Luke and Paul only? <laughs> Or is this something else? Uh, No, no, this
1: is something unique to Luke. Actually, oh fantastic! Okay, the word is the word's Uh, release, Uh, which yeah, which is a huge word. What's it mean? So so the yeah so the word release actually does not occur in the uh, Last Supper text in Luke twenty two. Okay, but you can't understand Luke's theology of forgiveness and salvation without understanding how Luke uses the term release. Okay. Because the term release is the term that Jesus uses to talk about forgiveness. So when you see in Luke, the word forgiveness used, it's the word release. So he uses it in relation to sins. So people's sins are not forgiven. People are relieved rele- from their sin. Um which carries with it the idea of of forgiveness, you are forgiven, but it's deeper than that, right? If you think about being released from your sins, you are not just released from the sins themselves, but you're released from the results of the sins. Okay. From yeah the implications of the sins, from the consequences of the sins. Release has is kind of a more in, all-encompassing word. Yeah, But Luke, this is something that, a point that I I, want to make with thinking about the idea of forgiveness in Luke. For Luke, forgiveness isn't just a spiritual thing. It's a complete human thing. So it's not just spiritual forgiveness, but it's also forgiveness or release from the physical and the social results of sin. So... You think about uh, the healing ministry of Jesus, Luke also uses the word released. So you're released from your blindness or you're released from your lameness or you're released from your leprosy or you're released from whatever physical abnormality that you have. So for Jesus, and it's interesting that Luke uses the same word. So it's, in Luke's mind, for Jesus to release people from sins, It sometimes it's a spiritual thing. So I think of the sinful woman in Luke 7 who comes in and anoints Jesus' feet with oil and washes them with her tears and her hair. Um, whatever this woman is, we're used to calling her a prostitute. That may or may not be the case. It's not necessitated by the text. People who say that she has to be, they're over reading the text. sure, And that's not Luke's point. Luke's point is that she's a sinner and everybody knows she's a sinner because of whatever it is that she does or has done. Right. And Jesus announces her forgiveness of sins. That, that seems to be that part of that is a spiritual thing. I want to get to the social thing in a minute. Part of that is a spiritual thing. But for Luke, for Jesus to release people from sin is also to release them, again, from the powers of sin. And so you think of the healing ministry of Jesus, which in Luke is tied to the power, binding power of Satan. But you also have to put your mind into a person who lived in the first century. For people to have these physical abnormalities for them is for them to be judged because of sin. It's the result of some wrong. This isn't in Luke, but you think about in John when uh, Jesus is confronted with a blind man and they ask, well, who sent him or his parents? Yeah, yeah. So that sin and physical disability are connected in the ancient world. Right. And Luke is also connecting them. Because even if you want to say it's, as is said in John, again, not in Luke. So we do have to understand that. But even if you want to say that, yeah, they're not blind because they have sinned. They are blind because the powers of sin control the world. Right. And so for Jesus to release people from... Their physical problems is to release them from the powers of sin and of evil, uh, to release them from the powers of Satan. Right? Okay. Now, here's where the social aspect comes in. For a sinful woman to be released of her sins, like in Luke 7, right? Or for someone who is blind or lame to be, or with leprosy, to be released from their sins. Is also for them now uh, to be restored socially, right? It, a leper is probably the best example of this. They can't. A leper can't be a part of social society, right? Live on the outside because of town. they have leprosy. Yeah. For Jesus to heal or to release them from that, they can now enter back into the community. Yeah. Um, they are now accepted into the community. The important thing in Luke's gospel, though, is that Jesus accepts them before any of that happens, which okay, I, yeah. I think Luke says that to make a point to the church as well. Zacchaeus is the perfect example of that. Jesus invites himself over to Zacchaeus' house. Right. Zacchaeus hasn't repented or changed yet. Right. That comes as a result of Jesus going to his house. It's not a prerequisite for... For him to eat with Jesus, the repentance is a result of his encounter with Jesus at the table, and
0: that's that salvation around the table that we were talking about before
1: happens yes. all the time. So it's it's there's even something about restoring someone socially first that can then lead to them being restored spiritually. Okay. As yeah. Well. Yeah and so and vice versa like so all these things work together so for luke jesus in luke he's releasing people from all of the results of sin the the spiritual the physical the social here's an interesting thing don't want to get into it but it's important <laughs> to point out i'm not sure if I, i'm not sure if anyone listening to this has, has ever noticed this so i'm go for it <laughs> Don't come burn down my house when I tell you this Go read your Gospels and you'll find this to be true Okay. When we talk about Jesus forgiving or releasing people from their sins uh, Jesus never, in the Gospels, actually forgive someone of their sins uh, Jesus never says, I forgive you of your sins He never takes that on himself Jesus says, your sins are forgiven, is generally how it's translated. Sure. Uh, So take the sinful woman in Luke seven, when he says, your sins are forgiven or your sins have been forgiven. That's one of the two ways that it's generally translated. The word, the verb forgiven is in, is a perfect passive. So. Let me tell you what that means. Passive means that the woman's not the actor. So she didn't forgive herself. Right. Someone else gave her that release. She's not releasing herself. She's pa- She's the passive agent. Someone else is doing this to her. Uh, the perfect tense is a kind of state of affairs. So Jesus is not saying, I am releasing you. He is announcing, you have... Or it's really more of a past tense idea. You had at some point in time before this interaction, you entered into a state where you are no longer controlled by the powers of sin. You have been released. That's you have been released. And
0: that continues to forgiven. be true, right? That's the perfect part. Am generally,
1: generally, yeah. Okay. Um, it's not always, but it's not. It, it's not you, you never have Jesus using the, the phrase I so I have it's you have been or you maybe even I don't know every case but let's even say he uses the present and not something that generally elicits so like the aorist or the perfect generally refer to something that has been completed not always in the past but generally a past tense idea Context is key. But even if Jesus uses a present, and like as of this moment, your sins have been forgiven, what's interesting is he never uses the an I. He never... It, it's Sure. It's more of a... You, I, you, you've probably come across, and I'm not sure many of our listeners might have, but the idea of a divine passive. The divine passive is the idea that used to people would say that the passive tense if the actor is not stated is always god okay so if someone is talked about something has passively happened to them and the author doesn't say who is doing it to them the assumption is that it's god doing it to them okay now that doesn't always work first off but a lot of the times it does like they they didn't create that out of nowhere but the problem is it doesn't work as a rule okay but there are times when it's you know good things you are redeemed you are forgiven you are saved you are made children of god whatever and paul or luke or whoever doesn't say who's doing it a lot of the times it's god especially you know god's the one doing these things through jesus but divine passive God's the one that's doing gotcha, it gotcha yeah so that's probably when Jesus is using the passive and not stating a subject like who's doing the action gotcha. we don't know Jesus doesn't say it's probably a divine passive Jesus is talking about God now right us 2000 years later Jesus is God yes but put yourself back into the original context And also realize that in the Gospels, at least in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, we've done an episode on this. Jesus doesn't explicitly call himself God either. So there's some tension there. Yeah. We understand this. Jesus, so what Jesus is doing is he is announcing forgiveness, not giving forgiveness. Okay. Technically speaking. Now, we can talk about Jesus giving forgiveness because we know the full story. Right. But in the actual text, so again like in my thesis when I'm just concerned with what is Jesus doing in Luke, Jesus is not giving forgiveness, he's announcing forgiveness. Technically.
0: Okay, yeah.
1: Now the bigger theological concept will say no, that forgiveness does come through Jesus. But you take someone like the sinful woman, uh, this story comes on the heels of a discussion about John the Baptist. And so I think perhaps this one, wo- and this woman searches out Jesus in Luke seven. Yeah. She finds him. Like she, she, So she's already encountered him or at least knows about Jesus. It's possible, especially given a John the Baptist kind of context the story is coming out of, that this woman's sins were forgiven when she was baptized by John. So imagine that scenario. She goes and she's baptized by John for the forgiveness of sins. So she was, she has been released. She's entered into that state of a person who has been released because she went to be baptized by John the Baptist. She comes, but she's known as a sinner. So she comes in to the table. Simon, the Pharisee doesn't want her there. Why? Because Simon still thinks she's a sinner. I don't want to have anything to do with her. She's going to make me unclean. So what does Jesus do? Jesus announces that she has she has been forgiven. In other words, he's announcing she. you think she's a sinner. In reality, she is no longer a sinner because she has entered into the baptism of John, which makes sense of the parable that Jesus goes on and says after that when he talks about those who have been forgiven much show great love. Okay. That the this woman is responding in this way to... A, to Jesus out of love for having been forgiven. Okay, but yeah. For her to come and show Jesus that love means that she would have had to have been previously forgiven cuz Jesus point is you are forgiven and then you show great love. Not you show sure. great love and then you are forgiven. That would be earning the forgiveness. Right. So by necessity, and that's why I think that story is a great example, by necessity that woman would have had to experience something before to seek out Jesus and to show him that love. Otherwise the story doesn't make any sense. And so Jesus is now announcing she has been forgiven. Now she can enter back into society, right? There's the social aspect, right? For Jesus to announce to his peers that she has been forgiven is to say she is now not to be excluded, but is now to be included. Okay. one who has been forgiven.
0: All right. Hey, a couple of thoughts (laughs) with all of that. Number one, so uh, this goes back to the new covenant thing just real quick. It was 1 Corinthians 10 that I was thinking of, of you can't sit at the table of the Lord as well as the table of demons. Uh, And there's a whole bread and food discussion, idolatry there. That's what I was thinking of, um, which is the section right before we get into... Well, not the section right before, but the chapter before we get into the Lord's Supper talk there. Mm-hmm. Um, so there may be more correlation there. Um, but thing number two, uh, when you said the sins forgiven thing, I thought about the, the paralytic. Um, and I looked in Matthew's gospel, but he said, like you said, your sins are forgiven. It's present passive... But he doesn't say, I, like you said. He said, your sins are forgiven. Um, And they say he's blaspheming. He says, so that you know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. Authority being a big deal in Matthew's gospel, at least around that section. Um, He says, rise up and walk. And it says at the end of that text, they glorified God that he had given such authority. So what you Mm -hmm. had said is that, that outcome of that passive being attributed to God
1: through Jesus but still attributed to God uh, yeah Jesus m- might be the agent or even there you could maybe even say the agent of announcing what God is doing because if you think of like a prophet sure right God could do the same thing through a prophet it's still not it's not still not the prophet forgiving but God's announcing or letting it be known yeah. Through this human, because he uses the the phrase son of man, right? Yes. Uh, Which it refers right to Jesus' humanity, son of man being a human being. Right. Now, a special kind of human being, right? Because of the connections to uh, to Daniel, right? Daniel 7. You have kind of a human being with some God type characteristics, but still in their minds, a human being. Like Jesus, we miss how much Jesus and the early church reinterpret these terms. Like, we just take for granted, son of man means God. Right. And it's like, but it doesn't. Like, that is not, it's been reinterpreted that way. And I don't think that's necessarily wrong, but that's not the way that people would have thought of it. Right. So it's probably not the way Jesus, and that was Jesus' favorite term. That's also, he doesn't use son of God, which also doesn't have to mean that he is God, you know. Sure. Uh, pagan kings were called sons of God right. in the... Old Testament, but Jesus likes Son of Man. He likes referring to himself as the Daniel Seven Son of Man. Yeah. He is a human being, but God is doing something special through him. Uh, but yeah, like you said, that that's a good example. So because the, they praise
0: God, the the other part of that is there's really a couple. So obviously he's he gets up and walks, and now all of a sudden he is a part of the society again. So there is the. The physical, there, that's very important. And that'll be something, it's it's, in, it's important in every aspect. Um, it'll be very important when we talk about the spiritual realm stuff in the next series of podcasts. Um, but the separating of physical and spiritual is not what we should be doing. <laughs> Those things are very interconnected. Uh, so all of that discussion on sin and society and how one affects the other and all of this you know, is very important. Um, as an aside, uh, I went and looked up Luke's account of the paralytic as well, which contains a lot of the same beats. Son of man has authority on earth to forgive sins. Um, but when he says your sins are forgiven you, it's not present passive. It's perfect passive in Luke's gospel. Um, and I don't know if that is significant. I don't expect you to have some like, Oh yeah, here's why. But I thought that was interesting. Uh, Maybe merits more more study. I've but. I've I've got an idea.
1: Okay, what's the idea? If if Luke is drawing out more so than the other Gospels, this spiritual, physical, social idea. Yeah. Uh, so go back to Luke's programmatic statement of his gospel is chapter four verses eighteen and nineteen, right. where Jesus, empowered by the Spirit, says uh, that the Spirit has. Anointed him to bring good news to the poor, release to the captives, sight to the blind, uh, set the oppressed free. Yeah, he uses release twice there. Hold on, I mean, I don't even have it pulled up. Uh, Let's see. Oh Lord, I'm looking. Uh, bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives, right. recovery of sight to the blind, and uh, free to those who are oppressed. Let the uh, to let the oppressed be released. Right is yeah. how I would translate that. Uh, right. Let the let, let the oppressed enter into a state of release and mm. um, so
0: if that's that's the mission statement then in the next section we have well not in the next section the next chapter that I was referring to um, the paralytic paralytic getting healed
1: um, yeah so the if that's what Jesus is if if that's what Luke is doing is trying to focus in on that yeah then the the perfect would make sense because like I said it the perfect refers to like a state of affairs um you have so I'm trying to think of a good way to explain it maybe thinking of like the difference between being sad and being depressed. Okay. Right, so the sad would be your present tense, you are sad. But to be depressed is to enter into a new state. Sure. Of affairs. You you are you are now in a different place because of what happened. That's kind of the way the perfect works. Gotcha. Um so Luke and I don't know how many times Luke uses the 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 perfect. I know that he uses it at times. And that may be his... If that's his go-to, which it sounds like it may be with some of the examples we've looked at, if that is his go-to, then perhaps the idea is when you are released and that causes you not just... In the moment, you are released, but you enter into a new state of affairs. For Luke, repentance is also key. So I'm wondering if he uses it because to be released is to repent. And so you're now living in a new way because you're now a new person who has been released. But you're also living in a new way because... It's not just spiritual release. You have physically changed and you have socially changed. You, you are, in every way of thinking about it, somebody new. Like, you are now in a new realm of existence because you have been released.
0: Okay. Yeah, and that's the next section, calling Levi at the table with tax collectors. Where are you eating with them? The well need no physician but those who are sick, and then come to call sinners to repentance that whole repentance idea following the forgiving sins bringing people into a new state of affairs as he's calling a tax collector into a whole entirely new state of affairs as well (laughs) come be my disciple cool this is how we go along by the way i think these are great discussions though
1: (laughs) i'm looking at to let the oppressed go free yeah Right, because I couldn't remember how exactly I had to look at the Greek and remember exactly how to translate that. Right, Uh, because uh, the oppressed is not a a noun; it's a verb, and it's a perfect passive
0: Mm, as
1: well. Well, it's a participle, so it's a verbal noun. Okay, so that's it. Can uh, but it's giving that idea of to those who are in the state of oppression. Yeah. Not those who, from time to time, are oppressed, but they are in a state of a press of a pressure. Right. That I am allowing them to go in release. Like that would be a literal translation. Those who are in a state of oppression are allow go in release. That's what I'm doing. Okay. I'm going, letting them go in release. They are, uh, and so you could probably carry over that perfective aspect, right? So they're in a state of oppressed. Now they're in a state of release because Jesus, again, he has, the Spirit has sent Jesus. He has sent me. Sent is perfect as well because Jesus is in a state of being sent to these people. Right. Which is also interesting. It's not at one time. I am now... In a, my being is one that is sent to the captives and the blind and hmm. the oppressed. Okay. Um, who are in these states to bring them release, to move them to a new state. Because I'm in a new state.
0: <laughs> okay.
1: There's your Greek class. There we there. go.
0: Uh, well, this episode was longer than we thought it was going to be. No, that's not true. Like, we said it was going to be short, but we didn't think that was going to occur. We just kn- didn't know why, but we had a lot Thought of there would uh, be a possibility. Yeah. Um, at least. we had a lot of good uh, discussion about various aspects, all of which surrounded these ideas of for you and new covenant and release the forgiveness and salvation that uh, takes place uh, around the table here. So, uh, if you have more comments to add to the, the discussions, either the planned one or some of the, Uh, kind of branches that have come off of that main uh, lesson for today. We'd love to hear what you think, too, uh, about some of the passages we brought up uh, and maybe some others that we didn't uh, think about or consider and all that. StrongChurchMinistries at gmail.com will get you in contact with us on email. Of course, Facebook. Thinking theologically, be sure to check out uh, the website where it sounds like we'll have some bonus uh, episodes and stuff coming at some point <laughs> on Lord's Supper. So you should definitely check those things out, and uh, anywhere else that you go for social media stuff, Spencer's there somewhere, and uh, he'll tell me all about it uh, afterwards. So uh, I think that's all we got for this episode. I'm Jack. That's Spencer.